Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, we are back doing the next episode of Come Follow Me podcast. We are doing sections 51 through 57, quite a chunk to read this time, but all kind of related to a similar historical narrative. I've got Christopher Hurtado back with me today. Shiloh is is still swamped by his school academic pursuits right now, but uh, good to have you back, Christopher. It's good to be with you, Ben. So Christopher and I have been discussing some of these sections before we start recording now. Lots of good things in here. One of the one of the things that we discussed about these sections is that they're you know, aside from all of the the nice little nuggets we can pull out of them, there's quite a bit in these sections that we could potentially deem uh, either irrelevant or less relevant. These were given, you know, in a specific context to a specific person sometimes for a specific reason. And obviously, we can pull a lot of great principles and, and understanding out of this. But there's also a lot of little things that aren't going to make much sense or be very relevant to us. You know, for instance, in section 52, there's this long list of all these different people and and what they're supposed to go do. And sure, we could pull a broader principle out of that, but it's not relevant to like a, a deeper gospel discussion per se. So we had this this discussion beforehand where we were talking about the different ways that scripture is structured. Doctrine of Covenants is, is really kind of a different thing because We've got in, in LDS standard works are, are canon, so to speak. We've got the Bible, which is like a curated, well, various curated scriptures over thousands of years. And these have been condensed and commented on and translated and, and, you know, everything that could be done to literature has been done <laughs> to them. And then the Book of Mormon in a similar way, you have all of these different things that's a compilation that was done by Mormon and some prophets before him, apparently, as well. And sort of you've got all of the particular points or sermons, and it's not all the nitty gritty of what was going on in the time. And so then we arrive at the Doctrine and Covenants, and this isn't, this doesn't have all of the history and baggage, so to speak, that the Book of Mormon or Bible would have that it sort of uh, that that developed over time. And they come they come out of this, they're sort of gleaned out of this thousand year old or multi-thousand year old culture and society condensed into this scriptural uh, account that we're given. Whereas the Doctrine and Covenants is actually Almost all the sections happen within like a 10, 15 year period, which is a very short time period to get this many pages of scripture from. And so we actually get a lot more 
what we might call nitty-gritty detail from these scriptures than we're going to be familiar with in other things like the Bible or Book of Mormon. All that to say that, again, back to the point of it could be that there's a lot in these sections that we may not find particularly relevant. Did you have anything to add to that, Christopher, what I was talking about with those? You know, that just that they could be interesting in terms of what they tell us about church history, and yet we actually need to turn to other sources to know the context for them. So in, in some sense, they are part of the context of church history. In another sense, to understand them, we need other sources for context. Yeah, and one of the most important aspects to the context of these sections is what was going on with Lehman Copley. If you'll remember the last podcast, we talked about Lehman Copley. He was part of the Shaker group and had been disaffected, sort of, and decided that he was going to come over and join the church. And then we had the whole deal where they were going to go and and a mission to the Shakers and... To let them know they were wrong. To let them know they were wrong, right? (laughs) And that actually did not go well. (laughs) Yeah, it looks like it's about getting... It looks like it's about converting Lehman more than the people. I just can't imagine how they would think they would go tell these people they were wrong and get them to therefore listen to them and and join them. Sure. But, But I can see how it would work on Lehman rhetorically. Yeah. So kind of answer, try to answer some of his concerns. I mean, in the end, it doesn't, right? It doesn't. So what happens is during this time when Lehman is wanting, excited about joining the church and, and being with the saints, he has a large piece of property there in Thompson, Ohio. He sort of consecrates or makes a covenant to donate this or consecrate this to the church. And the idea is that the saints that are living in New York at the time that were supposed to come to Ohio, they would have a place to gather to. And so he says, okay, everybody, you can come from Ohio and you can settle here on my land and just help me, you know, plant crops and improve, make improvements on the land. And you can live here at least for a time. And this was going to be at least a temporary gathering place. So Newell Knight and and all the group of the saints there in Colesville, New York, they, you know, root everything up, try to sell what they can and move to Ohio to settle on this property. Well, in the meantime, Lehman Copley has actually gone back to the Shakers and kind of reconciled things and kind of patched things up. And so he brings the the leader of the Shakers back with him. And it doesn't go well. <laughs> there's a kerfuffle. <laughs> Why is there's that? some arguments. And I guess there's even at some point, I don't know who between, there's some physical altercations, but it becomes contentious. The, the people that have gathered, you know, at this point, there's been this revelation through Joseph Smith that the people are supposed to gather this land and it's supposed to be theirs for an inheritance. And so... They're wondering what they're supposed to do because they're not welcome anymore. They're not welcome on this land anymore. Uh, but the Lord had told them that it's theirs, right? And so what are they supposed to do about this? So we're going to get into these sections that sort of you know, build out what the saints are receiving by, by revelation 
and why it is that they felt the way they did when this happens and and then what the lord instructs them to do and then there's a whole lot more that we can we can glean out of these sections here but that again that's sort of the historical context for for what's going on this all sets the stage for that for this group to move to missouri and to fulfill this or at least start fulfilling this zion prophecy that they have been waiting to to take part in and uh this is this is sort of the the seeds or the the early foreshadowing of of how that's all going to go <laughs> when they get to Missouri. Ben, couldn't we say that them having been given this land in Ohio is they could have taken this as a fulfillment of this building Zion prophecy. This is the place maybe in Ohio. And if so, isn't there an important lesson here? Because it turns out that even though you thought this was the land of Zion or the place you know, where you're going to build Zion and it was given to you by the Lord and it turns out, well, it's not, then uh, then there's an answer to that and it isn't stand your ground and fight for it. Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot that we could we could say about that. Certainly the saints, there were at least a good number of them that thought this is where we're supposed to settle. This is where we're going to build a people. It's not obvious whether the majority of them really thought this was the permanent location, but they they at least did have the concept that the Lord had given them this land. And so them just giving it up seemed like them, uh, you know, on the, on the, on the surface would be like them giving up on the Lord, right? You know, it'd be them not, right. not accepting or, or standing firm in the prophecy. And so there, there had to be another revelation that came to, to help them understand really what what the idea was but i i think you know the point being there is is valid because you know they go to missouri and they think that's the place well okay well missouri turned out not to be the place then they move to another spot in missouri okay that's not going to be the place okay then they go to nauvoo oh this could be the place no that's not the place so then they go out you know <laughs> so i think that they do there there is this sense that over time even though they do feel tied geographically to something the lord is trying to to break that a little bit is trying to to divest them of this being tied to something specific and more being tied to the idea of of gathering and that any land can be a promised land if they will but decide to be united as a people you know in thinking about what it means to be a promised land in a Greek way, and our thinking is Greek as Westerners, versus a, a Hebrew way of thinking. For as Westerners, as in Greek thinking, we can think of the promised land as this empty place that we as a promised people are then going to fill. Whereas in a Hebrew way of thinking, a promised land is only a promised land if there's a promised people living in it. Hmm. And so you can see where it doesn't really matter where it is. It's not the it's not the empty space that's the promised land. It's the fact that the promised people live there that makes it the promised land. Right. Yeah. And you know this we might discuss this uh, further on in the sections when we get to one of the parts. But you know the the one of the main themes in all of Scripture that uh, that's been pointed out is that of the Exodus. You know, moving yes. out and and obtaining a land of promise. You know, this is. This starts in, in Old Testament and, you know, it's just 
all over in the Book of Mormon. It's probably one of the principal themes in the Book of Mormon is is the Lord leading the people out to another place. And I see more to it than that too, Ben. I see that this is not only is, yes, you're being led to a promised land, but this is the response. This is a nonviolent response to you're not welcome here anymore. Or even though, again, as we see here in, in Ohio, this land has been given to you. Maybe this was already that you thought this was the promised land or it really was given to you. So w- what is that to you but a promised land? You were told you were going to be given a land. You have this land. And now it turns out you're not going to stay here. You're not going to fight, stand your ground, castle law, whatever you want to say. But you're actually going to leave. You're going to go away. Even this is a prominent theme, I think, in all the scripture, including in the Quran, that you have this idea of couldn't you go somewhere else as a response to, as an alternative to confrontation. Right. Yeah. So this is, this is Lehi leaving Jerusalem because, uh, you know, his life's in danger. He's not going to stay and try to change the system or defend his family. The Lord told him to leave. This is Nephi leaving his brothers because they're going to try to kill him. He's got the sword, right? He could he's probably a better swordsman. He could have defended himself, but the Lord tells him to leave. This is Mosiah, the first Mosiah. He he leads the people out and they find the land of Zarahemla. I mean, this this theme, I could go through all the the times this happens in the Book of Mormon. It's a half a dozen or more times, each with a little bit different flavor every time, just to make it interesting. But it's, it, it's this constant theme. You know, obviously the, the members of the church at this time, they just joined. Most or all of them have read the Book of Mormon almost completely through. They get this narrative. I mean, they already got it because, uh, you know, the Exodus, Moses is probably, you know, the deepest, most ingrained story in, in our religious cultural context. And so this is, and it is for Nephi and his brothers too. Exactly. Yeah, he's constantly referencing that. Remember, as as I know, I'm I'm sure Shiloh's brought this up with you, the idea that when they when Nephi and his brothers had to go back and get the plates, that they just thought there's just no way we can do this, and uh, how can we even try? And and all he has to do is bring up the Exodus story, and they're all in. Remember yeah. how God led <laughs> yeah. the people? Yeah. yeah. So it's it, it really informs their their culture and their consciousness at a very profound level. So. So this is is very familiar to them, and they, they're, they're you know, but it does compete a little bit with with the American narrative, which is you know that that uh, we stand and fight, right? We fight for our freedom. We have the Revolutionary War. This whole this whole concept that you defend those sort of things instead of fleeing, instead of running away, and the lock-in concept of of sure owning the land of having property in the uh-huh. land by mixing your labor with it. Yeah. So to that to that point as as we get into this we're going to see that the Lord deals with these people in in a way that they don't quite they don't quite understand at the moment. And we see that uh we see that they don't understand it because later when they come to Missouri and then they're kicked out of Missouri, they've had enough, right? And and they respond in a way that the Lord it hasn't commanded them to, but uh, we can we can jump into some of the discussion of the sections here. So, section fifty one. A few of the things that that stood out to me here. There was there's this uh, odd phrase 
starting in verse four that, that I'm going to read through and, and uh, get some of your thoughts on it as well, Christopher. It says, And let my servant Edward Partridge, when he shall appoint a man his portion, give unto him a writing that shall secure unto him his portion. And he shall hold it, even this right and this inheritance in the church, until he transgresses and is not accounted worthy by the voice of the church, according to the laws and covenants of the church, to belong to the church. And if he shall transgress and is not accounted worthy to belong to the church, he shall not have power to claim that portion which he has consecrated unto the bishop for the poor and needy of my church. Therefore, he shall not retain the gift, but shall only have claim on that portion that is deeded unto him. Okay, so lots of kind of flowery language here. <laughs> and we'll we'll come back to that theme a little bit. It sounds like it's more like... It's very legalistic language. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that too. Yeah. It's very legalistic. Uh, it's you know, it's very contractual. Cover. Yeah. And uh, we have this idea of property here, which is is very – property as sacred, right? And so that's that's probably where this concept of, well, you don't just leave your property behind because it's sacred. And if you're abandoning your property, you're abandoning something that's sacred, right? I think that that, that – that narrative and that idea is it was a is a very uh, American concept at least for these people at this time. Obviously, it permeates other other cultures and and stuff, particularly with land. But the other thing here that that stood out to me was this phrase, "not accounted worthy by the voice of the church." This is interesting because we've discussed these concepts of of worth and worthiness uh, previously, and and this seems to put it within the purview of the opinion of the church whatever that is and we can talk about that as well rather than rather than a divine decree or revelation this person isn't worthy right this is saying rather that the opinion or voice quote unquote of the church is what deems someone not you know not worthy not that they aren't objectively worthy before the lord but that the church deems them not so and uh, this is kind of a different thing you have the laws and covenants of the church which were given in earlier sections and then the members of the church are responsible to take those and judge according to those whether someone be quote unquote worthy this just stands out to me because i think often in our our discussions of of worthiness we take them to be we take them in the context of some like moral uh, divine moral standard whereas this is actually referencing a, a like a vox populi community moral standard not not a divine moral standard did you have anything to add to that well there is the caveat that's a, that it's according to the laws and covenants of the church but again who adjudicates it's mm-hmm. not it's not God directly. It's 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 actually men. And you know something else I see here, Ben, panning out a little bit. It looks like so Edward Partridge is the bishop, and it looks like people are deeding property to the church and then having deeded back to them property according to their needs. And when I say property, we don't have to think of land. I was going to mention earlier when I said mixing our labor would give us property in land. This is how, in a Lockean sense property is talked about. We think today we think of land as property or property being the same thing as land, but property is something that according to Locke is something that you have in the land. 
So you can have property in land and you can have property in other kinds of um, material possessions, right? So here they're, they're deeding property to the church and they're being deeded back according to their need. And yet if they, it sounds like if they would be excommunicated, right? If they would be found unworthy and if they would uh, not belong to the church anymore, that they would not be able to reclaim their property other than what has been reassigned to them from what they gave to the church. Yeah, what they what they currently have possession of that's already been deeded to them, they can take that with them. But anything that they've already given up to the church is for the use of the church and the other membership of the church. Yeah, that's what it, it appears to be as well. Is there a sense, Ben, today, do you think, uh, in which we are – you know, we're not deeding all our property to the church and get something, getting something deeded back to us and putting ourselves in this position where we might then be pushed out of the church for whatever reason, whether we are worthy or unworthy or, as you've pointed out, found worthy or unworthy according to the voice of the church, but where we are perhaps in this same position where we have something invested, right? Does that make sense? We have something invested in being in the church and I'm not talking about our tithing money or our, our fast and you know our fast offerings that we should get that back if we're excommunicated or something <laughs> like that. Although I can see somebody th- maybe thinking that way, feeling that way. It's like, hey, uh-huh. I put all this money in, why don't I get it back? But I'm wondering if there's some other sense in which we can be invested, where it becomes really painful to to be deemed unworthy by the voice of the church. Well, that's an interesting concept. I hadn't I hadn't quite thought about that before, but I. I mean, I hadn't thought about it explicitly, but, but I actually have thought about that in a sense that, you know, so much of, I say our, but I, I'm just going to say my identity is tied up with membership in the church and, and things ancillary to that. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but the main reason is, you know, just my genetic heritage. So, you know, I'm born into a family that have been members of the church for many generations. And so this, this identity is so tied in with that, that it's a very, uh, what I have, what I have discovered is that when I am friends with someone that decides for one reason or another, that they don't want to be part of the church anymore, it, it, at least for a while, was actually really painful to me because the, because so much part of my experience and identity is part of that had, had been invested in that, as you say, that losing that, uh, that common identity felt like I was losing a piece of that relationship to that person. And it, I know it doesn't have to be that way, but it just, it just is. You know, and it's not just, this isn't just a uh, taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, which it, it could be that, but we, we have so many other identities that we tie up into this religious tradition that things like that happen. And so, yeah, when, if, if someone were to, you know, come out of that, they, they leave part of that identity behind. I can imagine that being the case. And I, and I see, you know, with, with, a lot of friends that I've known that have decided to to leave the church, that it is very painful for them to leave part of that identity behind. And it's it's a very difficult process for them to go through. 
And um, we often we often look on that, or at least I know I I used to look on that in a very judgmental way. And now that I understand a lot of that more, I I don't. And I understand it not that they're you know I don't see it as a betrayal. I think I did see that once that way as a betrayal, and I don't see it that way anymore at all. I see you know this person is is trying to understand who they are, and part of that process that they're going through is that they're they're sorting through these identities and if they if they choose to remove one of those I- identities as part of that process i need to be understanding and sympathetic of that and realize that 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 wasn't something they necessarily wanted they didn't want to lose that identity it's just as part of the process they're going through they found it necessary to in order to to move uh, into something else and Anyway, maybe I'm speaking a little too too abstract there, but I, I I definitely feel like I I empathize with that a little more. I understand. Um, I have compassion for for the process and and pain that that can be part of that. Yeah. So if that can be painful, imagine then going back to my question: how much more painful it might be if you didn't choose right. to divest yourself of that identity, but you were found unworthy and therefore. Right you were excommunicated according to the voice of the church. Which, again, that what we're looking at here in this verse is, who's deciding this? Is, right. it, is, it, is it God who's saying you're unworthy? Or is it man who's saying you're unworthy? Yeah, and this, this seems to suggest that this is, again, voice of the church. So this is a, this isn't a revelation. This is a sort of a democratic council process, which which is uh, part of what we go through now. And, and the instruction, the policy is that we're, you know, revelation is and inspiration is supposed to be part of the process. But, you know, <laughs> that's, that doesn't mean that it always ha- that doesn't mean that that always happens. And so your mileage may vary, we say, right? Yeah, 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 results may vary. <laughs> but you know, and back to your what you're saying about identity, too, I think there is a sense in which, of course, your identity is tied up with your membership in the church because that's the point yeah. of a religion, right? The religion is what it, it comes from religio, right? From the Latin where we get, if you take the, the legio part, you can see where ligament comes from that, yeah, right? So tie. it's something that, yeah. that binds us together, right? Religion right. binds us together. And so now you've been disbound to use a, a book term since I'm such a bibliophile, but you, you, you know, you've, so you can think of yourself as this, as this, as this signature that was part of a book, you know, these pages that are now taken out of the book and what are you now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just one identity, you know, there's, there's layers of identity that, that happened here with, within that context. And, and when it's, and then when that is superimposed upon like a, a family structure, that can be even more difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, there are pages and pages to, to continue right. my analogy, right? Yeah. And, you know, that definitely is, is a good point you bring up. You know, it's one thing for somebody to decide that, that that's the way they need to go. And it's another to to feel like or for them to experience it where that's that identity is like forcibly removed from them. Uh, through through that 
excommunication process. And that, you know, my understanding has always been that that is not the intention of the process, but certainly intentions are are bound to individuals and so you're going to have individuals that do have that intention when they when they do that and obviously that's a sad thing um we should you know try to re-examine um all of those and try to see what we can do to avoid those kinds of situations but it's going to happen you know it's been brought up you've got you've got uh, leadership roulette right you know, you're going to have different bishops and different stake presidents that have varying degrees of of understanding and and willingness to to seek inspiration and revelation, and and so that's just the way it is. So, thinking about some of the principles in this week's reading, without referencing verses, when I think about this reading, this week's reading as a whole, I can see some principles that can apply here as a solution. If I if I could maybe put forward a solution for mm-hmm. for someone who might be going through this and you can see how if, if you if you read the the sections closely we can weave together some kind of solution and it looks something like this you uh, first of all you have to be willing to renounce property and the material right to give up what you would call your property or what Locke would call your property in these material things whether it be land or whatever and in this our, our context isn't even really the same, but the point is uh, it's of letting go, right? right? We talk about identity here. There's the principle of emptying ourselves, of divesting ourselves of our investment and in certain, and, and not in our, in our identity as members of the church, because that's the thing that we didn't want to lose, but in whatever, whatever we may have in terms of pride, it's emptying ourselves of pride, right? And being able to being being willing and able to humble ourselves, and to trust that whatever we thought was promised to us here, that it may not be that this is it, that it's still somewhere further ahead, right? And so you can see the possibility, at least, of a path opening up when one door closes, another door opens. In some sense, an excommunication an excommunication can be a mercy. It can be very painful. But it can be a mercy. It can be necessary. I think we're here hinting at at times when maybe it isn't necessary, when maybe there's some kind of misunderstanding or some kind of miscommunication yeah. uh, between the human and the divine. But either way, there is, if we trust in God, there's always a path back to God, uh, whichever. And, and it seems, you know, when I think about the feeling that you gave in talking about your friends and what they were going through, you get this sense, which is very familiar to us because we see it all around us in, in our fellow humans of paths that just don't go in a straight line. You know, there is that straight and narrow path and, and that's a great standard to hold to. And yet sometimes we wander and we're lost and we have to find our way back. And ultimately, I believe Rumi, uh, the 13th century Persian poet, Sufi, poet is right in saying that there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. And we we should be able to trust, we can trust in God and knowing that he will find a way to bring us back to him one way or the other. Yeah. We're all that one lost sheep. Sometimes we might like to think ourselves as one of the 99, but yeah. we're not. We're not. None Wait, of us really? are. Me too. <laughs> yes. None of us are. We're all the one. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's a beautiful image. 
You know why? Because it immediately, I immediately find myself, if I'm the one, then I immediately find myself wrapped in the safety of the Savior's arms. And that's such a beautiful image and such a, such a beautiful feeling. Moving on in this section here, one of the things that we discussed beforehand that, that uh, stood out to me, and I thought you had some, some good insight on this was, This last verse, verse 20 of section 51, it says, Verily I say unto you, I am Jesus Christ, who cometh quickly. And that's a very common phrase there. But then he adds this little thing that's kind of this new, it's a new phrase for us, at least here in the the Doctrine and Covenants. In an hour you think not, even so, amen. And one of the reasons I think this is an, an interesting addition is because we've had all this, I come quickly, I come quickly, I come quickly. And the, 30 some odd times. Yeah. Ostensibly, the understanding is, okay, he's coming next week or, you know, very soon. Uh, I think that if, I think that if you told the average saint, you know, it's in 200 years, he won't still have come. They would be like, I don't know. No, there's no way. <laughs> it's, it's definitely happening like really soon. <laughs> okay. No way 200 years is going by. And, and so, I think adding this in here in an hour you think not kind of, you know, kind of throws it up in the air a little bit. Like you, you didn't understand what I meant by that. And, and I think that does give a little bit of weight to the way that we have framed that phrase there. Uh, I come quickly. Um, so what, what other thoughts did you have on that, Christopher? Well, you know, I'd like to start by pushing back a little bit because I think, you know, <laughs> it's possible that the saints today may feel like, you know, it could be another couple hundred years. We should not take quickly to mean quickly. Yeah. Because look, we had uh, in Old Testament times the idea that that the Messiah was coming quickly and it didn't happen and, it get, and then it gets pushed back uh, later on by later prophets. Then you get in the New Testament, Jesus says it's going to happen in his lifetime or sorry, in the lifetime of the people he's he's talking to, that his second coming is going to happen. It quote unquote doesn't happen. We'll have to circle back to this and ask, does it happen? Does it not happen? And so the early church fathers push it back. And then the the early saints certainly thought it was going to happen pretty quick. You know, like as you say, next week, quote unquote, and it doesn't happen. And now, I don't know. I, I think if we asked Joe Latter-day Saint, they might say, yeah, it could be another couple hundred years, but we should, but we don't know. The thing is that we don't know. And that's where this second part comes in, right? In an hour, you think not. So it, it could happen at any time. And yet who knows when it's going to happen? Only God knows, right? This is what we're told. Only God knows. And so we, we talked about this a little bit last time, right, Ben? In, in saying that, well, there's, there's several tacks we can take here. On the one hand, does the Lord come quickly? Went right after he dies, right? Well, he appears to his uh, disciples right after he's resurrected, three days after he dies. And he, there he is on the road to a mouse talking with them and they feel dejected and they're going back home and they're going to face the ridicule of having left everything to follow this supposed Messiah. And now he's been crucified by the Romans and that's that. It's, it's not the thing we thought it was. And there he is. And they say, he says to them, what's going on? They say, you know what's going on? Are you a stranger? Are you a foreigner or something? You don't know what's going on? Jesus was crucified and they don't recognize him. This is Jesus himself walking with them. 
And, you know, they're just dejected. And he starts quoting them as always. He goes to the scriptures and he quotes them from the scriptures. And his message seems to be not, hey, you guys had had me figured out. You understood me and what I was saying. And you lost the plot when I got crucified. But rather, no, you never really understood, which is kind of what you've hinted at here, right, Ben? You, you didn't really understand what I was saying. And then there's the idea of that I mentioned last time of the brother of Jared, where it's a pretty big deal to see a finger if we compare him with Moses, who just sees this burning bush. There's no actual epiphany, right, in the, sen- in the sense of actually seeing God in his person, let's say. And yet here the brother of Jared sees the finger. So that's a really big deal. And then all of a sudden, when I say all of a sudden, I mean quickly, quickly, the veil is part. Once he sees, right? And But but how does he do this? And this is another theme in this week's reading. The brother of Jared purifies himself. He purifies his heart. He does an alchemical work in purifying his heart such that he can see the Lord, Mm-hmm. such that he can have a beatific vision, such that he polishes his own heart so that it reflects that imago Dei, that image of God that is in him, that is already in him, but that, again, that mirror needs to be polished, right? It's not clean and it doesn't reflect accurately who and what we are as as made in the image of God. And so once he has done this work, which we can see it really is, it really does look like alchemical work in, in with the stones, that he, where he takes those, you know, and brings them into a crucible. And he, there's sort of this solvet coagula operation where he dissolves them and re, and they, they become a new, and something new, right? As Christ is always talking about a new creature, yeah. a new world, a new heaven, a new earth. Yeah. And so he puts himself in a position where he can actually, where the Lord can come quickly to him. So that can happen to any one of us individually as we do the work that's necessary which doesn't mean that we can earn it in any sense, but that we have to prepare ourselves, that we have to, that we have to be seeking him in earnest. And then when, well, I can, there, there's more than one way that I can read in an hour. You think not. It could be, okay, it's not at the end of the world like you thought it was. And, and another way to read it, to put it the other way around is the end isn't what you think it is. Right. And then of course, there's the usual interpretation of you don't know when the end is. Right. There are just there are ways, there are different ways we can read this. Yeah, and I, I, I like that it changes it up because what it does is it makes you rethink it. And I think that's the idea. It's it's it kind of goes with the theme of, of repentance that we've been talking about, you know, seeing God in a new way. And so you get this familiar phrase, but then a little thing is thrown in that says makes you think, okay, what does he really mean by that? You know, then you can, you can sort of meditate and ponder on that. And I think that's the point. That's the idea is to, is to really think about that and examine it. So what is it? What is, what relevance does this have right now in this time and place for my existence? So I, I, I like that, that that's thrown in there because it, it makes us reexamine in that phrase rather than just pass over it. Yeah. I, I, I like your approach. You know, I think one of the things that we can do that's, that yields a lot of, that but that can potentially yield a lot of insight in our scripture study is to stop knowing so much and ask questions hmm. right and actually think about what what could this mean how else could this be read right we we have our standard interpretation and and even you know even if there's an interpretation that is given to us there's you know 
The question is, do we accept it unthinkingly or do we actually think through the interpretation that is given to us such that we can, in some sense, own it? And then to realize that there are layers of interpretation, that there are, that there are ways to read the scriptures, that there's more than one way to read any given verse, right? That there's the, that there's the moral reading, that there's the allegorical reading, that there's the literal reading. Listeners can refer to the famous letter of uh, Dante. At, at least it's, it's said to be, to have been written by Dante to Can Grande de la Scala whose name is just the coolest, right? Because it means <laughs> big dog of the step or big yeah. dog of the ladder or something and that deals with these levels of interpretation. And that can be helpful. You know, as you were talking about that, it, it, it brought to mind the the concept we, we've talked about before, Shadow and I have talked about before, about when you're first coming into an understanding of your relationship with God and the character of God, the scriptures often represented it as a cloud, Right. So it's this, it's this literally this nebulous thing that's not defined. We, we know it's there and it's something, but it's obscured in some way. And we don't, we can't quite define it. And this, this goes to brother of Jared. This goes to, you know, lots of different scriptural accounts as, as this idea of this, this cloud. And as, as we come into a greater understanding of God, you know, that, that cloud sort of starts to solidify or we start seeing a finger, right? And and we start seeing a little more defined about who God is. But but I, I love how you know, just as just as soon as that happens, a lot of times we're thrown back into the cloud realm again. And there's this there's this uh ebb and flow, so to speak, of this, you know, you and Riley talked about it. It's sort of faith and doubt, so to speak, right? This passing back and forth between a defined and an undefined God. And, and it's not, you're not stationary with that. You know, one of the analogies I like with it is actually a spiral. And so you, you seem like you're going in a circle, but you're actually ever ascending. Yeah. I and like so that. So from a certain perspective, if you look, if you turn that spiral on its side, it just looks like you're going in a circle. But when you look at it from a different perspective, you actually, are coming to newer and higher understandings each time that you pass through this process. And you know, you you refer to it as an alchemical thing. But I, I I just like that that idea there that that as we we allow our our ideas that we have sort of previously formed um and solidified <clears throat> to then become nebulous again, so to speak, and let us pass into uh, a little bit of doubt and 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 let go of some of these things then we actually pass into that chaos and then can come back into the order bringing something new and fresh and more profound and more precise with us and uh that is just to me you know one of one of the great lessons or 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 themes of of spiritual understanding spiritual experience is is that process there yeah, I think you're referring to the Latter-day Contemplation episode on contemplating doubt, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, where, where we cover, yeah, because if you have faith, doubt, as Leslie Hazelton put it in her excellent TED Talk, is essential to faith. If we don't have any doubt, then we don't have faith. We have knowledge. 
or at least we think we do. Remember, as, as, a, right. as a philosopher, I can give you a definition of knowledge, which is a correspondence to reality. So you can think you know something and be wrong. Right. And so that's the thing we have to be open to. Maybe the thing that I think I know, maybe I don't really know. Yeah. And so if we're willing to, to contemplate doubt and to allow that as a possibility, then that can open up new understanding for us. And that seems a little bit scary, maybe. But just remember, uh, you know, when it comes to to spiritual growth, as you pointed out in the beautiful image of the spiral, it really takes it takes faith and it really takes letting go. Right? It takes trusting. It takes taking that step into the darkness and trusting that the that the light will appear, and then walking toward that light. It's a beautiful. It's a dance. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's okay that we we come to a place that we deem knowledge, you know, because that's just that other side of that, as long as we're willing to then pass again back into the doubt. We don't come to knowledge and think this is the panacea where we have arrived, right? We we allow that to pass. And the same goes for the doubt. We allow ourselves to come to an understanding. We don't say, oh, I have to remain in doubt. No. You don't have to stay there either, right? It's it's right. a process that we need to allow ourselves to be in flux between those things because that's how that's how we move forward with every step. You know, when where you're walking, you really only ever have one foot on the ground most of the time at any given point. The other foot is in the air. It's it's in flux. It's in doubt, right? That walking really is controlled falling. <laughs> right. That's what it is. And walking in faith is like that, right? Isn't it? Yeah. Falling, it's a controlled falling. Well, I don't know. Let me stretch this analogy a little bit, right? It's like, who, who's in control? As if we're, if we think we're in control, we might be holding on too tight and not trusting that, um, you know, that, that the Lord will catch us if we fall, so to speak. Yeah. Which is not to, which is not to make one of these appeals to the kind of blind faith that, that you hear about in some of these stories of these youth camps where you, are supposed to fall backwards without knowing if someone's going to catch. I mean, that's not God standing beside you. Okay. That's a youth leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is turning into a contemplation podcast. I like it, Christopher. <laughs> so uh, as long as that's okay. Yeah. That's, it's fine. We can talk about whatever we want. <laughs> All right. But we, we, we'll move on with, with section 52 here. Um, there's a, I want to make a brief mention of a name. There's there's tons of names all over in these sections. And for the most part, we're not going – I don't think I'm going to make much mention of, of many of the names. If people want to look them up, they, they can. I'm I'm kind of here for more of the, the revelation type um, principles. But, but there is a ben, name one, that I want to bring up. Go ahead. One, one thing about that before you go into this particular name. You shared with me a source I was unaware of. There are many sources that we can turn to. Right. In, in terms of church history to get better, a better understanding of the context. Of course, we have the, the section headings. There are church histories. There's the one written by B.H. Roberts. There is the one that was recently published by the church that I think is still coming out in parts, right? Yes. Yeah, and there's this other saints, right? And then there's this other source that you told me about that I didn't know about that I think is worth mentioning to for listeners who might not know about it. Yeah. So in, in the gospel library app, on your phone, and it's going to be on the church's website as well. There is a section called Revelations in Context. 
And this is a this is a specific companion to the Doctrine and Covenants, where almost every single section of the Doctrine and Covenants, there's going to be some exceptions, ha- belong to one of these revelations in context, which is basically a short historical primer on what is happening in the context of this revelation. What question was asked sometimes is the you know is the topic of that or. What was going on? What characters were involved? Why was this revelation received? What context was it received in? So that, you know, we're not just, just given this thing with, without understanding how it connects to, you know, where, where its roots are. So the, the, the revelations of context kind of gives us the roots of the revelation, what it grew out of. And I think that that, that really, um, you know, it's really valuable for all the sections, some more than others. Some of the sections you can kind of gather what you need necessary, you know, and, and get a good amount out of it. Other sections like make absolutely no sense without that. And so it would be a really important thing, I think, for people to look at when they're reading through the doctrine and covenants. We don't have anything like that for like the Book of Mormon because we just got the Book of Mormon. We don't know the historical context of it at all. It is what it is. If the, if the history is not written in there, we just don't have it. And and here with the Doctrine and Covenants, we have all this this metadata around the these sections that we have to pull in in order to to really understand what's what's going on. Yeah, you told me I, I could think of it as an expanded section header, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, now, exactly. What you hadn't told me was that it gives at least sometimes you said the the question that's being answered. I would say for folks, I think that takes some of the fun out of studying your scriptures. <laughs> I, I encourage you know readers you know to think about what question is being asked that right. that led to the answer that they're reading before they go read the answer. Yes. Yeah, that's. I think that could be almost a, a universal prompt before you approach the scriptures. You could say, "Okay, what what question brought this about?" I think that trains, so to speak, that might not be the right word, but I'm going to use it. That sort of trains us to to be asking questions in order to prompt our own personal revelation that we uh, can be seeking for. I relate to that by way of analogy as a philosopher. You know, to the idea that. You know, if there's a revelation, it's because there was a question. And by analogy, if a philosopher has put pen to paper, it's because there was a question. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the philosophers, they the answers may not be all that useful. You may find that they are that they don't jive with revelation, that they are incorrect, that they're not helpful. But the questions are always good, and the questions yeah. uh, the questions are are the same questions that the scriptures answer. They're questions of well, what we call the big questions, right? In life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's so much, I think that could be discussed there with, with questions and answers. And I think it might be left for another time, but I, I should just say that we, we often are much more, uh, much too interested in answers to the, to the, to a fault. Yes. And we're not, we're not balanced enough on our interest in questions. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of a, another uh, resource for readers, and it, it's from a philosopher. It's from James Faulkner, who's a philosopher at BYU. Mm-hmm. He wrote the book, you know, you've, see these, you've seen these books, maybe the Book of Mormon made easier, or the Doctrine and Covenants yeah. made easier. He has a book called The Doctrine and Covenants Made Harder, Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, is I've, full I've, of I've questions. Heard of that. 
Yeah. It's, it's a good book. And actually, I think you can download a free PDF of it. But it's certainly okay. available, uh, you know, in book form. Yeah, I've heard of that. So the, the name I want to bring up out of section 52 is John Murdoch. So he's mentioned in verse 8 of section 52. There's a whole part of Revelations in context just on John Murdoch. And, and I'll give you, you know, I'll kind of go over a little bit of his history. There's, I, I may tell some of it wrong, but it won't mess up the story. <laughs> okay. So John Murdoch, uh, he joined the church and then he was called on a mission and he went off on a mission, left his wife, his pregnant wife behind. His wife gives birth to twins and dies in childbirth. And these twins, their, their father is off on a mission. Joseph and Emma had just lost another baby. Um, and so they take these, they adopt these twins. And these twins are the ones that they, that Joseph and Emma are caring for when, at the time when Joseph and I believe it's Sidney Rigdon are dragged out in the street by a mob, beaten and tarred and feathered. And the door to Joseph's house is left open. And because of exposure to the cold, the, the babies die. Um, now, and these are, these are babies that they adopted from the Murdochs. So John Murdoch returns from his mission, you know, and his wife is dead and his, his twins that had been born to his wife. He, he then goes out on another mission after this. This is, a, this is an, uh, an example of the kind of information that's available through this resource that you were right. talking about, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's more, I think there's actually more about John Murdoch in a, in a later section. But anyway, you, 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 when you get stories like this, I think it, it, it kind of like tears down that wall of, of, you know, you being able to separate yourselves from these characters and say, man, these, these people really, they weren't just, you know, walking all over the United States, having fun with this religious group. Like they were going through horrible, awful trials while trying to become part of this new religious movement. And they weren't, they weren't separated from those things. And, and some of those things didn't have anything to do with the fact that they were part of the religious movement. You know, we talk about persecutions and, you know, that's one thing, but these other things, you know, they were just experiencing life. And this, this was somewhat commonplace for the time, right? You know, you had high infant mortality rates, but um, the fact remains that it, it, it wasn't any less uh, sorrowful for them than it would be for us today. Yeah. And well, the, the high infant, and the high infant mortality rate answers the, what happened to Murdoch's wife question, but then what happened to the children is about, is about persecution. Yeah. Right. So there's a little bit of both in this story. Yeah. There's a little bit of both. Exactly. Story. Then as, as section 52 progresses, we get to this, uh, block of verses, uh, about 14 through 19. That goes on this topic of uh, avoiding deception, and it kind of gives us what it calls a pattern of avoiding deception. And um, this is interesting. I had to sort of think over this for a little while to to really understand what it is that it's getting at at its core here. I'm going to read through some of this here. Satan is abroad in the land, and he goeth forth deceiving the nations. Wherefore, he that prayeth, whose spirit is contrite, the same is accepted of me, if he obey mine ordinances. He that speaketh, whose spirit is contrite, whose language is meek, and edifieth, 
the same is of God, if he obey mine ordinances. So we'll stop there and, and discuss a little bit. We we have this idea that as long as any given person is obeying the ordinances and they are speaking in a, in a humble, contrite way, then they are accepted of the Lord, it says. There's no reason to believe that they are under any evil influence, right? You can you can judge them as being of God, as of, of having a heart in the right place, so to speak, if they are are doing these things in this way and obeying the ordinances. But really the main question for me is what what does it mean to obey mine ordinances? What does it mean to obey the ordinances? And uh, this this word ordinances, you know, we can look it up in the 1828 uh, Webster Dictionary to know what it meant like in the time and, and context. But here for the saints and, and even for us today, this is referencing specific ceremonies and, and rituals that, that they had. And at this time, I believe we're only talking about three particular things. Early, in an earlier verse, it talks about being ordained to the office of, of an elder. So there's that same ordained order. And then we also have baptism and laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. So baptism of fire, baptism of water, baptism of fire, and then priesthood ordination. So these are the, you know, basic ordinances that uh, the people are, are going through at this time. And what they, what these do is they sort of, they're, they're marked at, you know, the baptism is, is the entry ordinance to define a person as belonging to the church, as a member of the church. And then these other ordinances are are things that push them along further into membership, so to speak, right? At the root of this word, ordinances, we have this order, right? Ordinare from the Latin to, to put something in order. And so we have a, a ceremony or a ritual that creates order within and 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 really what we mean is order within the church or how about in a relationship with god right so order within the within the mode that the church establishes uh, for a collective experience with god is what i would say right yeah and so you you have your personal experiences like what we might call personal revelation or um, here it says, pray, pray, spirit is contrite, and then later speak of spirit is contrite. I, I kind of, <clears throat> you know, your personal morality, your personal righteousness, your personal spiritual journey, which uh, is very individual and unique. And, and you have individuals that will bring that and join the church, bring that uniqueness with them and into the order of the church go through these ordinances and what they're doing is they're they're bringing <clears throat> all of that spirituality to add to the collective and the ordinances kind of are a way of unifying the people under a collective experience that that their personal experience may differ in some way from but then you have these ordinances that are are the thing where everybody can sort of have that common ground of of religious experience and that's important to have that structure, and yet it can be, it's easy to see how it can be misunderstood such that in coming 
under that collective mode, right? That you would somehow have to give up your individuality or that you would somehow, that you would have to be, that there would have to be uniformity or unity. Yeah, or that it would somehow dampen or or take away from that that other part of you, that, that other, other part, personal. right? Yeah. yeah. So, so there's the what, what Riley and I talked about in an episode in Latter Day Contemplation on um, the esoteric and the exoteric. There is, of course, the the covenant path. We're talking about ordinances here nowadays. We think in terms of the covenant path, and so there are these these outer expressions that are an essential part of that collective experience, and yet there's and, and that brings a, a unity. But it doesn't imply necessarily uniformity in because there's still the esoteric, the 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 individual, the experiential, the the individual experiential relationship with God. Yeah, and and I think that is what this is talking about here. You know, we in earlier sections we have similar patterns here where he's talking is like we've got this whole new religious movement, we got all these spiritual gifts. And how do we make sure that we keep them in a box? <laughs> yeah. You know, because coming out of the great awakening here, you, you've got just all these different, uh, religions springing up all over the place, you know, even restoration themed. Again, all these spiritual gifts, people with all these new ideas. This is a, this is a, you know, people trying to experience their religious freedom in America. You know, a little bit of uh, historical context here is, yeah, the Constitution um, guaranteed religious freedom like in a national context, but actually individual states still had state religions. They had state churches up until uh, even into the 1830s. Some of the states had state churches, sponsored churches. And so this is – you know, a lot of this that's going on is is these people, you know, experiencing this religious freedom. And so then you have this religious institution that comes along that's trying to exist within that religious freedom structure, but then also create more order out of it, right? And so it's yeah. this order that's emerging, trying to emerge from the chaos and um but but maintain a little bit of that chaos, right? <laughs> you know, you say the nineteen thirties, I, I think nineteen sixties you still couldn't be, well, maybe you could be Catholic, but you couldn't be Catholic and president. That that <laughs> was an issue, right? Yeah, yeah. So so even th- there's this Protestant nature to to being an American. Yeah, most of the state churches were. I'd, I'd have to look back at the exact dates, but I believe the 1830s was where kind of the last state churches were were kind of done away with or, or or went their way. So it was it was at this time when that was kind of, you know, that Pandora's box was being opened up to to all of this. So it's an it's an interesting dynamic that they they had to deal with and and again, you know, many people have pointed this out, but but uh, Joseph Smith's ability to create a community, a cohesive community behind this idea, you know, either speaks to his true divine nature calling as a prophet or just his sheer religious genius, you know, pick, take your pick <laughs> on that. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add on that? Well, he has to find a way. There always has to be a way in some sense, in con- I'll say in constructing orthodoxy to define what's who or what is in and who or, who or what is out. Yeah. 
And so we saw at the beginning of this discussion, right? We have Lehman Copley who wants to be in, but as we discussed in last week's episode, he has to then give up certain beliefs that are going to be said to be false. And, you know, they go and, and they preach that these ideas are wrong and that this is the right idea. And, and ultimately he, he, he doesn't accept that, that revelation himself. I don't know. If, I don't know whether anybody else. Do you know Ben? Did anybody else from his community no. come over? No. No. Uh, my understanding is that the the Shakers just rejected it wholesale, at least at that time. Now, of course, uh, we we saw what happened to them since they didn't believe in having children. They didn't believe in, in marrying, and presumably within their context, uh, their nineteenth century context, they also weren't didn't believe in having children outside of marriage as the alternative. Certainly not as a religious alternative. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So the, they weren't able to persist uh, in that way they weren't able to win enough converts over time to persist in that way i guess you know one of the one of the other verses we discussed here was verse 40 out of section 52 and this this is one of the things that we said sort of is this distilled essence of a lived religion right you know this is common to uh, every religious tradition that we can think of at least any any uh, significant or, or somewhat major ones. So verse 40. The traditional religions. Yeah. And remember in all things, the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. For he that doeth not these things, the same is not my disciple. So uh, multiple times in scripture, we're reminded that, uh, you know, regardless of, of how pious you may seem in, in other types of religious observances or, or whatever, this is an absolute essential part of your discipleship of your religious experience is to care for the poor and needy and the afflicted. I think this verse convicts us. <laughs> I think this is one of those verses where we need to maybe slow down a little bit and think about it. I personally feel convicted every time I'm reminded. And there are plenty of reminders in the scriptures. And as, as with so many other verses where we where we think we know what it means, it's easy to gloss over these verses without really thinking deeply about what they mean, period, and or what they mean to us personally and how we should respond. What, what, is, the, what is the call? What is the invitation? The invitation to us personally and how should we respond to it? So that's, it's worth pausing there. Yeah, it, you know, the, the word remember really hits me there because... <clears throat> We often re- remember is used usually in our language, I'd say more than 90% of the time to evoke like a, a mental exercise of memory. The actual, you know, etymology of the word is, is bringing something back that once was a part of it. And so a member, right, is a part of a greater whole of something. And to remember something is to take that part that was supposed to be part of it and put it back in place. Yeah, this is something that that, I, that we've talked about, Riley and I have talked about, maybe you and Shiloh too, when it comes to the sacrament, right? Yes. That re- remembering is actually, if we're if we're tearing, if part of the sacrament is actually to, to, to tear the body of Christ, mm-hmm. and then to remember it means to, as we partake of it as a community of Christ, as the body of Christ, as the temple of, of the Lord, that body that in 
that in the New Testament is said, your body is a temple, where the you is actually plural, not singular, then that then the, then the Christ becomes remembered, comes back together again in us. And this makes me, it, it, it takes me all the way back to the Old Testament where, you know, the, the ancient Israelites are making these idols while Moses is up talking to God after his experience with the burning bush, as I mentioned last episode. And they, they just want to make an image of God and God looks like he's looking for a body. He's looking for that body that is us, that he wants us to show what it looks like, what God looks like. And so what does God look like? This verse, right? And remember in all things, the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted for he that does not, doth not these things, the same is not my disciple. Yeah. You know, the poor, the needy, the sick, the afflicted, those are those that are, are cast out, right? Maybe, maybe not physically cast out, but cast out by their circumstances. We even have this scenario with Alma and, and preaching to the, the uh, Zoramites, you know, those poor that are cast out, remembering them is going out, finding that one and bringing them back to the 99, right? You're, you're yeah. bringing them back to be a member. You're remembering them. They're in some sense incomplete without us. And that means that we are incomplete without them. Right. We talk about that in the context of work for the dead, but it's really the same concept. Yes, we need each other. Yeah. We, you know, if you're not one, you're not mine, says the Lord. Yeah. At the end of this section here, verse 42, and thus, even as I have said, if ye are faithful, ye shall assemble yourselves together to rejoice upon the land of Missouri, which is the land of your inheritance, which is now the land of your enemies. Ben, before you go into that, sorry, there's, there's one other thing that I thought of. Please. In reading, because remember, I'm glad you went into this idea of what remember really means. There's still the sense that we have of it as this mental operation. And that aside, you know, thinking we should probably consider this other possibility, right? This other thinking about what the word really means. And yet, regardless of how you think about it, how many times are we told in the scriptures to remember? In the Book of Mormon, it shows up over and over and over. Remember, 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 remember and perish not. So many times. And I'm reminded that in uh, in Arabic, as you know, you and I both studied Arabic, mm-hmm. that the, the word for human being is actually the active participle forgetter. In other words, the one who forgets. Yes. Insan right. is the one Insan. who forgets, yeah. right? And the scriptures uh, that are given, the Arabs, the, the Quran, is given as a dhikr. It's called a reminder. So a dhikr is a reminder. So because we are forgetters, God gives us reminders in the scriptures. And that's what we see here over and over. Remember, remember, remember. And so we can take that. And I think that that's easier to identify in the more popular conception as a mental exercise. But there's still the possibility of going deeper with that into what it means to actually bring ourselves back together as one, not only with with each other, but with God. Understanding ultimately that that just as Jesus says the Father and I are one, that he is inviting us into be ye therefore perfect. And one way we can understand perfect, the word is translated from a word that really means complete. 
well, if we're all one and we don't realize it, and if we're one with God and we don't realize it, then the realization of that oneness, of that unity, is perfection. Right. Yeah, exactly. All of that. (laughs) Underline asterisk highlight. Yeah. (laughs) We're done. So verse 42. (laughs) Yeah, verse 42. So this is kind of like a foreshadowing of, of the discussion that we'll jump over to here in a minute when we get to to 54, because he says that's the land of your enemies. And then he kind of like goes on. It's like, wait, what do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean enemies? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know that they, they have much of a conception of them having enemies in Missouri at this time. And certainly they're not the Lord's enemies. They're his children, you know, but he, this almost seems to like a foreshadowing of, Hey, you're going to view them as your enemies. Let me tell you, let me teach you how you should deal with your enemies. So-called, right? Perce- yeah, so-called, exactly, who you perceive to be your enemies. I always say enmity is the only true enemy. Yeah. It's enmity itself that is the enemy. Yeah. There's there's no actual enemy other than enmity itself. Yeah. It's the perception of that. It's a, it's yes. a epistemological thing, not a metaphysical thing. Right, which reminds me of something that Stephen R. Covey said in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is anytime you think the problem is out there, that is the problem. Yeah. That is the problem. Yeah. Look inward first. Cleanse the inner vessel, right? Yes, indeed. So we'll keep that in mind, you know, this this concept of their enemies being in Missouri when we we follow up this. Uh, with this here in a little bit. I didn't have a whole lot uh, to mention really out of uh, section 53. It has a little discussion in verse six about ordinances that I thought was was relevant to, you know, to, to previous, um, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily have much out of 53 that I thought was, was relevant to the overall themes we were talking about, at least this time. Did you have anything you wanted to mention out of there, Christopher? The only thing that I see here that, that I want to comment on is in verse 7. You get this. I, I'll read it. And again, I would that you should learn that he only is saved who endureth unto the end. That's so important, right? That we, that we actually remain faithful, that, that we remain faithful and that we, that we complete on our, that we, can I say complete? That we keep our covenants. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I don't remember where here, but in this week's reading, there is the the explicit declaration by the Lord that his side of a covenant is null and void if we don't keep ours. It's it, it's actually laid out explicitly. And I think it's in one of the, the one of the sections that we've already covered. You know, this word endure, I I looked it up in that uh, Webster 1828 dictionary a little while back. And the, one of the definitions just like hit me over the head with a baseball bat. I thought it was so profound. It, it said that enduring was withstanding, or, or it may not have used that exact word, but that was the idea. Withstanding something without resisting and without yielding. Whoa. That's what, what do you make of that? Well, to me, that was just so fascinating because like Christ tells us resist not evil, right? And right. and when we endure something, it's we're not fighting, but we're to endure to the end. And and this isn't, this is something we're, we're like, 
going to fight. You know, sometimes we call it a struggle, but I think the struggle isn't against the world. It's against our own, our own perceptions of the world. You know, you, we were just talking about this, right? It's not against our enemies. It's against our own perceptions of our enemies. You know, this enduring to the end is this, we're, we're not trying to fight against reality or, or against something that is, is imposing itself upon us, but we're also not yielding to it. Right. And, and this seems to me to be, get at the heart of Christ. He's not resisting that. He's not fighting against the evil, but he's not yielding to it either. He's, he's standing in truth. Yes. I'm reminded of a, a quote from David O. McKay. The greatest battles of life are fought out daily in the silent chambers of the soul. Mm. That quote yeah. came to mind. Yeah. There's the idea from, I'm an Islamicist, right? So I, I'm always coming up with these ideas from, from the Islamic tradition. There's the idea of, of jihad, right? Which is literally a struggle. Yes. And there's the, there's the hadith, the saying of the Prophet Muhammad that as they were, as he was returning with his, with his cohorts from a battle that he said that we're going now from the lesser jihad to the greater jihad. So there's this sense, you know, popular, not only among non-Muslims, but even among some Muslims that jihad is about a holy war. Yeah. He was pointing out that, that the greater jihad is this one that David O. McKay refers to later as this inner struggle, the struggle for, for righteousness, the struggle for the struggle to endure. Yeah. The er, Enos says he wrestles mighty prayer. Alma talks about struggling in the spirit. And Mm. I think these are, these are all things that, you know, happen internally, but like the, the enduring is where we, we learn to, to not try to fight back or resist anymore, but to just stand in that truth, knowing that standing in truth is strong enough. There's no need to go on the offensive, right? <laughs> With I it. love that. I love that because you can see how someone might think that enduring means something like stand your ground. Yeah. Again, this this castle law attitude. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think we're 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 going to go in another direction here as we follow the the thread of these sections. Yeah. And yeah. sections to come, of course. Yeah. So I mean, moving over into to fifty four. Again, this is remember the context we talked about at the beginning was that that Lehman Copley had said he the saints could stay on his land and then later came back and said no you can't you got to you got to leave. And so uh, Newell Knight and all of the the people that are with him are kind of stranded now. They don't have anywhere to go. They they left all of their homes in New York. They came here. This was what they were promised. This is where they were going to stay. Now they're being told they have to leave. And, you know, the question I think could come up in their minds like, well, this is our property. It was, you know, the Lord gave it to us, so to speak, it was given to us by covenant. Uh, Revelation said it's ours. So it's ours, you know, you need to fight for it, right? That might have come up in their mind. Yeah. And they might think of that as enduring, right? Sure. Whereas, whereas look at this verse three. And by the way, the verse I was referring to earlier uh, that I thought was in a earlier section, here it is. It's verse four. Yeah. So we get, and if your brethren 
desire to escape their enemies. Let them repent of all their sins and become truly humble before me and contrite. And so there is a true sense of endurance. And if we don't endure, then look what happens as, as the, as, and as the covenant which they made unto me has been broken, even so it has become void and of none, of none effect. Yeah. You know, here we have verse four kind of to me alludes to beatitude of meekness because it's like, you know, if you want to escape this, your enemies taking over your land, you need to truly repent, humble yourselves before and become contrite. The meek will inherit the earth. You will realize that this little piece of ground is not what matters. Anywhere in on the earth can and be that's yours, three, can right? be a promised land. Yeah, verse three. Because you're meek, and so you can inherit any part of the earth. And that's where you'll belong. Because I've made, you know, the entire earth is for for the inhabitants of, of my children, for the inheritance of my children. And kinda I kind of see that there as him saying, you know what, look inward, right? Cleanse that inner vessel, repent, and then you'll see the way forward. You don't see it now because you're blinded by your your own covetousness, your your identities that you think are tied to this piece of land and and what you've been promised in it or whatever. You repent and you come to me with a contrite heart. I will show you the way forward. It's it's maybe not what they planned, but blessed are they who have kept the covenant and observed the commandment, for they shall obtain mercy. There's the obverse of verse four. You know, Ben, there's our our church is very American in so many ways, <laughs> right? And but I didn't join the church in in America, at least not in North America. Mm-hmm. I was in South America when I joined the church, and I have the experience of growing up bicultural, having been born in the United States, spent my first eight years here, my next eight years in South America, and and beyond that of having ex- having traveled extensively on i think five continents you know north america south america europe in the uh, north africa and uh, southeast asia excuse me southwest asia and then what we call the middle east and having learned first spanish you know portuguese french italian arabic and so on and having even lived uh, in jordan and syria I don't I don't identify in the same way as someone shall I say more provincial? I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Um perhaps that's derogatory. Someone who has only the experience of being an American. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I don't identify with any one place, not America or any other place, in the in the way that someone who only has the experience of America or any given one place. Uh, it does. And so I actually feel like to testify to what you've said, and I know Shiloh's talked about this, uh, and, and I think you and Shiloh have talked about this. He and I have talked about it. I belong anywhere. Right. I've, in some sense, I've already inherited the whole earth. Now, of course, I have not been everywhere. And so I might feel out of place in some places where I haven't been there. I don't know the place. I don't know the language. But as I've made the effort, as I've traveled, as I've lived abroad, as I've studied and learned languages, I find more and more that I belong anywhere. Yeah. I could say that I'm a citizen of the whole world, but it's not a political statement that I'm making. It's more, I'd rather say I've inherited the earth. Yeah. And and that's more of a, a spiritual statement than a, than a political one. Yeah. 
I see so much to that here in, in what they're experiencing it. And, and I, I don't have any idea if, if any of them, you know, realized this at the time they were going through it, maybe, maybe sometime after this is something they learned. I, I'd be very interested to see if there was any commentary in anybody's journals about, about this fact of happening at the time, but I certainly see it here. Again, in the context, the hermeneutic we've been using of the, of the Beatitudes, it, it does just seem to fit so well with with what's going on here and what the Lord is is trying to bring them into an understanding of of who they are. So verse 7, Wherefore, go to now and flee the land, lest your enemies come upon you, and take your journey and appoint whom you will to be your leader and to pay monies for you. There we have the paradigmatic nonviolent response to right. any confrontation. Go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. That's yeah. it's that simple. And it's the it's the story of Exodus that we said is that permeates all of the scriptures, in, including yes. as I mentioned the Quran that says, Couldn't you have gone somewhere else? Yeah. And and that's a response to a, a, a confrontation. Yeah. We don't have a time in restoration scripture, I should say where we have the Lord commanding his people to go out to battle. Now, when we get to section 98, Doctrine and Covenants, we're going to talk a lot more about this explicitly, you know, because the Lord says in there that I give a law unto all my ancients and, and everyone that they should not go out to battle, save I the Lord command them. But you go through the scriptures and except for some some Old Testament references, which we could have a you know a ten hour conversation about, but but I say restoration scripture because we have these caveats on the Old Testament that uh, as, as Latter Day Saints that we have some issue with their their authenticity and translation, right? <laughs> in the Book of Mormon and the New Testament, obviously, uh, Doctrine Covenant Church history, there's there's never a point where the Lord commands His people to go out to battle. You know, Ben, we say we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Yeah. And I think you, I think almost always, if not, I shouldn't just say usually, almost always, if not always, we think of that in terms of from Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, question mark, uh, even maybe even if we consider the Peshitta, uh, you know, you know, the translation into English from right. those languages. I would like to issue a challenge, a, a something for your for for our listeners to consider: Is the Word of God translated correctly from the Revelation to the page? We've said here, with um, in Spanish, we say without hair on our tongues, but I don't think that works in English. You know, we <laughs> we, we have said here plainly that we see a lot of Joseph Smith here right. in the Old Testament. I see an ancient way of thinking. Where God is our tribal God, where, where, where Yahweh, right, is, is the Israelites tribal God, and he's going to beat up on the other tribes God. And I don't think this is who God is. And I don't think the, the Israelites understand this and that God is revealing himself yeah. to us, meaning to his creation, to, to our, to the human family over, you know, very slowly over a vast period of time. And he's patient with us. And if the ancient Israelites want to think of him as their warrior God, you know, he just has to sigh and say, okay, 
I'm not your warrior God, guys, but I'm, I'm glad you're praying to me. Let, let's keep yeah. stay in communication. Let's keep with this me. relationship I'll, I'll work, going. Let's, let's keep not this cut relationship off this relationship. Going, right? Yeah, and yeah. I, and I will I'll work with you. And and I think we're still yeah. What well, we are, we I, I don't I know we're still coming to a a greater understanding of Him, and we do believe also that there is no end to the possibility of our understanding of all things, and even of God's in our theology, of God's own understanding of all things. We don't mean by perfect that, that we've reached some Greek telos or end. There is no end. There is no ceiling. There's no, well, I'll leave it at that. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot there to be said. Like, like you're saying, there, there's so much more that we could, we could go into on that. So I'm going to go over here to, uh, section 55. This section is, uh, a revelation given to uh, W.W. Phelps. Okay, so this is a pretty pretty famous character in church history. He was friend to uh, Joseph Smith. Um, he had his ins and outs with the church over the years, but I think ended up in. <laughs> he was Oswald a- that ends well. Yeah. He was a printer. He was an editor of a a periodical, uh, a newspaper that published anti-Masonic material and content. So he, there was this rather strong movement at, at the time uh, in the New England area, especially to be anti-Masonic. It was, it was very, um, you know, against the Masonic rites and, and rituals and organization of the Freemasons coming into and establishing themselves in the United States. This idea and and attitude has persisted to the present day, right? <laughs> so W.W. Phelps was was part of this. He was, he was publishing a newspaper. He got a hold of a Book of Mormon somehow, and I don't I don't remember um, how this happened, but he got a hold of the Book of Mormon. He read the Book of Mormon. He just thought it was amazing. He was awesome. So he he uh, tracks down the church. He joins the church, and uh, Joseph Smith immediately is recognizes his talents as a printer and is able to bring him in, gets this revelation about what he's supposed to do. And he is an enormous benefit to the church at this time because he's able to help them professionally publish things that they had just been sort of trying here and there to do in a, in a less than professional way. You know, they got the Book of Mormon published with E.B. Grandin, but, you know, at this time, the general sentiments among the different populations were such that it was very difficult for them to find someone that would publish things for them. And so bringing in W.W. Phelps and his expertise and experience uh, to be able to start publishing stuff for the church was a pretty big deal, made a huge difference at this time. So that's what you know, he got busy doing uh, Oliver Cowdery, obviously assisting with his um, with his education. Well, it's right on time, right? It, it's important. I keep thinking when the when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. When the pupil is ready, the master will appear. But it's not that. It's but it's like that, right? Yeah. When you when when you need a printer, there comes a printer. And you know, I had this, this funny thought too, Ben. You know, how many times have I seen? a Bible placed by the Gideons in a hotel room. And I've never gone looking for the, the Gideons. We have so many stories of people that come into a, 
the Book of Mormon. They come across the Book of Mormon and they go looking for the church and join the church. It could be just because I, I already have a church and I already had a Bible, but I, I've, it's never occurred to me to go looking for the Gideons. <laughs> I know, right? Where to find them in the bedside drawer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's nice. You know, they've they've branded themselves in in that way, getting that out. They really have. Exactly what that is, but uh, yeah, I I mean. I think I looked through a, a copy of a first edition, you know, like a replica made. And, and it was interesting how it was all put together in, in a very different way than how we have the Book of Mormon put together right now. Lots of differences there. But, it, you know, it doesn't include the, the full testimony of Joseph Smith like we have now because that wasn't written till 1838. It has a, a little shorter account, says something about an angel. I don't think it even mentions that the angel's name was Moroni. You know, and, and so there – there's not uh there's not a whole lot about it that ties it specifically to the organization of the church and so i'm again i'm not sure how he came about the book maybe maybe it was from missionaries and so he did have contact with them but you know i know like in the case of parley p pratt i think he got handed down the book and he had to go search out the church you know track him down so well, he was on a mission for someone else, for some, for some other church. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. when he runs into the Book of Mormon. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that ends up being a course change for him. So section 56, uh, there's several things we discussed in here, but the, the stuff that uh, stood out to me most was actually towards the end. And, and I, I liked verse 18. This is, uh, again, a lot of beatitude language on, on the theme here. But blessed are the poor who are pure in heart, whose hearts are broken and whose spirits are contrite, for they shall see the kingdom of God coming in power and great glory unto their deliverance, for the fatness of the earth shall be theirs. So this kind of goes back to our discussion about perceptions and our frame of mind when we're humble, our, it says pure in heart, hearts are broken, spirits are contrite, we can see better. Right. This actually is, is a theme repeated often in scripture. And I always love the description of Enoch, um, in the book of Moses, where Enoch goes, the Lord tells him to, to put clay on his eyes and wash him. And then he opens his eyes and he sees all the spirits of men and he becomes a seer, seeing things as they really are, seeing people as they really are. The pure in heart, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I love that that ability to see means that we see God everywhere. Seeing reality for what it really is means we see God everywhere in his creation and in his children all around us. And uh, that's anyway, that's what I love about that concept there. This is a beautiful verse, Ben. I especially love, you know, the, yes, there's this language, this, this beatitudinal language, and then there's something sort of new here, the fatness of the earth. I just love that. The fatness <laughs> of the earth. Man, that just really speaks to me at a visceral level. So I have a lot to say about this. And I think I'm going to refrain from saying it all here and now because, <laughs> for, well, because there, we still have more material to go through here. And because Riley and I are, we've got an episode coming up on, on the pure in heart. And so I'll, I'll, I'll reserve some of those some of those thoughts for that opportunity. But I would like to, you know, point us backward to what I said earlier about polishing the mirror of the heart, purifying our hearts so that we can see God. But in this verse, we can also see that that that, that vision is going to be within us. 
The kingdom of God, said Jesus, is within us. So seeing that kingdom of God coming in power and great glory unto our deliverance is not something that's out there necessarily. This is something that happens within us. Right. And for it to happen out there, it has to happen first within us. So it's not that it doesn't or can't happen out there, but if we're trying to build Zion out there and we haven't done this internal work, is it any wonder that we haven't created the external? Yeah. Right. When when we have to start within us, right? When the, the, the work that's to be done is an internal work, the work of purifying the heart, following the example of the brother of Jared, so that we can so that we're prepared to see God. Yeah. One of the episodes we talked about Zion as an effect, not a cause, you know, and that, that internal work that you're talking about that we do is, is the cause. And then Zion is that outwardly manifested effect, those dues from heaven, right? This, this thing that comes about because of what, what we've done individually. Um, in our in our discipleship, mm. and then we get this when you say the dues. There, there are a couple of things that you said that really spoke to me. The dues reminded me of something from the last episode I recorded with Riley of Latter Day Contemplation, and we talked about the the dues of Mount Carmel, hmm. which which means the Garden of God. Hmm. So you're talking about the Garden of Eden, right? And how and how those dues distill upon our souls, and then. Something else you said made me made a, make a connection between this fatness of the earth and again that that vision of paradise, especially when I think in terms of what the what in in the Islamic tradition is seen as as paradise, right? It's this and it's consistent with our own, right? It's this paradise, this walled garden where there's where it's just so lush, right? Where where there's just and I also think in terms of my own experience growing up in South America, where in the backyard, you have half a dozen tropical fruits where you didn't plant anything, you didn't water it, you didn't do anything, and it's just there, right? There's so much richness. Um, and so that's what I think of when I think of of the Garden of Eden. Yeah, you know, I, I just realized that the I mean, maybe I knew this before, but for some reason, it's it's coming to my mind like I hadn't made the the small little connection before, but that, that analogy of dues from heaven is actually a description of an alchemical process, right? <laughs> because that, that water has evaporated. So it, it dissolved into the air and then saw we had coagula, right? Then it there coagulated. It, it, it distilled back in, in a purer form, right? Yes. Than what it, so anyway, that's, that's interesting. Concept Condensed, uh, tri tri triple distilled, maybe. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Wait, that's not alchemy. That's something else. Uh, so these last two verses here of 56, For behold, the Lord shall come, and his recompense shall be with him, and he shall reward every man, and the poor shall rejoice. And their generations shall inherit the earth from generation to generation forever and ever. And now I make an end of speaking to you, even so, amen. So Amen. again, just kind of rounding out that that inherit. Do you, do you ever get the sense in sorry in, in reading these some of these sections? You know, they open up and the language. You know, the, we've talked about hearing Joseph Smith in them, and and there's the idea that they they have to sound the way Scripture is supposed to sound. Yeah, I mentioned I mentioned pre-recording that. In it's interesting to note that the Book of Mormon in in the Arabic translation is printed fully voweled, whereas only 
the Quran and the Bible, only scripture, right? Only scripture is printed in Arabic fully voweled. Right. Most of the, the, well, most of, yeah, most of the short vowels in Arabic are usually not written. They're not written in, they're not printed in any other books but scripture. So the, the Book of Mormon in Arabic has uh, all the vowels. And in addition to that, it has some, not illumination, but at least some ornamentation in the margins, right? I guess we could call it illumination. It's illumination in a, in in an Islamic tradition of the way that they did calligraphy. Yeah, and then the the highly stylized uh, calligraphic representation of the title, right? The the title itself is highly stylized yes. on the cover, yes. because otherwise it would not be taken seriously as scripture in its context, uh, meaning in the context in which Arabic scripture would be required, right? And so there's that, uh, you get some of these verses, you know, opening some of these sections that are just these, the the word, the the expression that keeps coming to my mind is over the top, but coming down to the end of these sections, a lot of times what you get is this language that is just, it's so gilded. It is. It's just, it's, it's so expansive and inclusive and it's just beautiful, beautiful language. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very uh, King James, like, you know, and, and this is because that is, that's the scripture that Joseph Smith knows and, and a lot of the people that are there with him experiencing, you know, that is, that's what scripture is to them, right? And, and so that's the language of scripture. And so when they hear that, it sort of turns on their, their scripture ears, so to speak. So it makes sense that it would be that way. And and actually the doctrine of covenants I think is is a little more King James-ish than maybe even the Book of Mormon because here we have just revelations coming from Joseph Smith himself as opposed to Book of Mormon being something that akin to a translation. We d- we don't know exactly what happened with the Book of Mormon, but but it it comes from something else and so it, it comes out of a, a language that isn't wholly Joseph Smith. Now there is some Joseph Smithness to it, but it, the the King James is, I think, a little more apparent in the Doctrine and Covenants, I would say, than than uh, the Book of Mormon, even. But uh, just to the point that that it makes sense that it would be that way because that is uh, the cultural um, understanding and expectation of Scripture. And you know, you brought up. That the Book of Mormon is done in the in the scriptural tradition of Arabic when it's translated into Arabic, and I imagine they do that with with other uh, languages as well. I'm not as not necessarily as familiar with that. You know, I've seen a lot of translations of of the Book of Mormon, and I've never seen another one that is in uh, that has the the illumination that has anything. Yeah. Other than the text and, the, you know, this, this. Right. Of, I haven't either. That's why I just wonder if there's yeah. something. You know, so I, I, I agree with everything you said about, uh, about the, the language. And yet there was something that I was trying to get at that, that's something else. And that is, and I, and I could be wrong about sort of the beginning of the, the, the chapter and the end of, or the section and the end of the section. Maybe it's more that maybe it's not at the beginning, the beginning versus the end, but maybe it's more. That there are these ebbs and flows. There are some times where the language really lands, and at other times where it just seems over the top. And these last verses right. here in this section are just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree with that. They sometimes they they do flow really well with that, and other times they do seem 
Awkward. Awkward. Yeah. Awkward yeah. might be the right word. So uh, section 57, this is uh, a revelation about the place of Zion. So this is uh, the big one, right? This is the revelation that tells him where Zion is going to be. So if you thought it was Ohio on, uh, yeah. what's his name's land? I forgot his name. Yeah. Lehman Copley. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the interesting thing about this one is this is still widely considered uh, to be authoritative as Zion, right? So we look at this uh, in the latter, Latter-day Saint tradition as even though the saints moved on to Nauvoo and even though they moved on to Utah, Zion is actually still in Missouri. <laughs> is it? Is it, this is a doctrine that has developed. Yeah, well, it's it's stuck around specifically because of this section. And so the the idea that well, okay, so maybe the idea that that Zion is the people and that you know it does exist in as a as a Utah um is is a is an idea, but there was always that latent well we're going to go back to Missouri one day, right? To, to make Zion. Someday in Jerusalem. So, you know, if there's, if going back to that Greek versus Hebrew understanding of a promised land or a or place, we have the, I, I think you're right in that there's still a sense that there, that there's a, a return to Jerusalem, well, or to the new Jerusalem or to Zion. It's not always clear that the New Jerusalem and Zion are the same thing. Right. There's a development in LDS theology when it comes to these two things and mm-hmm. the second coming to add a third one. Right. And and yet we have this idea that Zion is the pure in heart. And that aligns much more closely with the Hebrew understanding of a promised land. The promised land is wherever the promised people are. Right. And so Zion is wherever the Zion people are. Right. That's That's another way to think about it. Will there be a Zion in Missouri? Will there be a New Jerusalem? Will there be a temple there? Because there's there's a sense that that there will be, and yet in Revelation twenty one twenty two we read that there will be no temple in the New Jerusalem because Christ will be the light. There there are different ideas about this, and they've they've changed somewhat over time. There is a development in the doctrine, and yet here we are at the beginning of this all, right? With this this revelation that in some sense, as you say, we still do somehow, even though we say Zion is the pure in heart, there's still this idea of a Zion or a new Jerusalem or both. Maybe both are the same thing in Missouri. Yeah. Where you live, by the way. (laughs) Right. In, in the Latter-day Saint consciousness, there is, there is still this tie to Jackson County, Missouri. Do you live in that County, Ben? No, I don't. That's up near Kansas okay. City. I'm down south. But there is this tie to Jackson County, Missouri. And it could be that uh, members of the church who are in other countries or members of the church who maybe they're the first generation or second generation joining the church, they don't, that's not as present in their, in their consciousness. I'm just saying that like from, from a person who's, you know, many generations, that has been ingrained in a consciousness of that, that being there, you know, that there's always Jackson County is, is very much a part of, of that. And, and, and I think you kind of alluded to this. It's, it's very analogous. And, and I don't, I don't mean to, um, I want to say this more delicately than I, than maybe I will, but you know, it's analogous in some ways to the Jewish, uh, Jerusalem thing. I, I don't think it's, 
anywhere near as strong or, or deep. You know, we're talking about something that's 5,000 years old for that. That's right. Or, you know, 3,000 years old for Jerusalem. Um, so it's, it's not anywhere near at that level, but, but it, it's kind of that concept, right? That they're right. Uh, next year in Jerusalem for Mormons. It's like, you know, next year in Jackson County, right? It's kind of, right. that's kind of the idea. It's there in the consciousness. Yeah. And I don't mean any, any disrespect toward the Jewish idea. It's just that as Christians, we bring these, we bring those traditions forward in our own unique way. And so, but yeah, I wanted to draw that analogy that you've just drawn for me. Yeah. Absolutely. If I, if I hadn't, if I hadn't made it clear myself. Yeah. Absolutely. So in this section, I'm going to go to verse four. This just, uh, I remember a couple of years ago studying this, this stood out to me. And then this time again, I had forgotten about this and then it kind of hit me again. And I think there's something really profound to be learned here beyond what's just uh, seems, seems obvious to be written. So verse four says, wherefore it is wisdom that the land should be purchased by the saints and also every tract lying westward, even into the line running directly between Jew and Gentile. So the first thing that stood out to me about this was why is he saying Jew and Gentile? Like in earlier sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, um, he doesn't use really, he doesn't use that distinction. So I'll start with a little bit of geography here. At, in 1831, the basically the westernmost boundary of the United States is the uh, west border of Missouri. Okay, that is like the entirety of the United States. Beyond that is Indian Territory. Okay, it's called Indian Territory. It's not settled. And so we have this line, right? It says the line running directly between Jew and Gentile. So here, the Lamanites that are referred to in earlier sections and who the, the, the members of the church at this time have identified the Native Americans as Lamanites. This is, this is their narrative of who these people are. Now, whether it actually bears out that this is the case doesn't really matter, um, to, to what's going on within their narrative and consciousness and, and, you know, their organization as a people. Their, conception of the world right now has the native americans as lamanites and the the white settlers as gentiles okay and <clears throat> because of the book of mormon and all that nephi goes into the lamanites are seen as descendants of the jews so here they're referred to as jews so the border uh, between missouri and indian territory is this line it's the line running directly between Jew and Gentile. And to me, it is so fascinating that they would get a revelation that the center place for Zion, the place that they are supposed to go and build Zion, is right on the border between Jews and Gentiles. Okay? Because yeah. the, 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 the message of the restoration is that all people are to be gathered in. All are alike unto God. These distinctions will be done away with. And so what do you do? You go and you build a city right on the border. And that city is going to be the bridge. 
It's what's going to bring Jew and Gentile together. And the Lord's going to do it through his people, through the restoration. And I just think that's that's so profound that there would be this physical geographic location that represents this overall symbolic mission of the church and the restoration. Yeah, you know, the language of Jew and Gentile evokes for me the language of Paul in Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So specifically, there is neither Jew nor Greek. So you have Jew and Gentile, and like heaven and earth, they come together, like in, in what in alchemical terms is the hieragami, the sacred marriage of heaven and earth, where opposites are conjoined in what we in what is called the mystery of conjunction, the mysterium conjunctionis. This idea that I keep going back to that we have to conjoin all the pairs of opposites. Riley and I just got finished uh, recording an episode where we discussed mercy and justice and how those two can be collapsed into one. And we know that the cherubim and the flaming sword are placed at the threshold of the Garden of Eden, where we are welcome back, where we are to partake of the fruit of the tree of the tree of life, which is the love of God, which again is the Son of God, uh, as seen by the Eastern Orthodox Christians. They saw the cross as a as a as a as directly related to the the gar- the tree in the garden that it's that Jesus is on the tree on the cross on the tree it's one and the same thing you have the love of God on the tree in the in the dream of uh, Lehi for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that's the love of God and so if if we're welcome back into the garden what are the cherubim and the flaming sword there for and the answer is not to keep us out but to make sure that before we can go in we have to check our duality at the threshold right they're keeping they're they're guarding a higher order from a lower order and that lower order is one of duality and that higher order is one where those pairs of opposites are conjoined where there are no lamanites or nephites where there are no jews nor gentiles or greeks greeks or gentiles or jews or gentiles etc you know I, I, I as you were talking about that i I was thinking about this eternal concept that we keep bringing up in other contexts of of chaos and order and and how symbolically that unsettled territory the Indian territory is is sort of the chaos right this is the unknown mm, yeah. it's it was just explored by Lewis and Clark but it's not been you know incorporated into the new order of the the expansion westward and so it's kind of a yin and yang type of thing right you have on the right side, this this order. On the left side, sort of this chaos. But then within the order, there's there's this chaos going on because it, you've got this wickedness of the people, and the the Lord is is has brought out. You have this wickedness among the order, but then the Lord has restored His church and brought out His people, and He's bringing them to that border of this. Of this chaotic. Anyway, <laughs> there's there, there seems to be so much there that um, this is just history. But uh, the the symbolism that that really overlays all of this is is really fascinating. Yeah, the yin and yang uh, reference is very much apropos. 
It it fits nicely. I hadn't ever considered that before until you were talking about that, and it kind of that that idea fit in there. J- just geographically, it's interesting <laughs> as well. Yeah, it is. I don't I don't know that I have a whole lot more to say about Section Fifty Seven. I think um, I'm I'm satisfied with the with what I expressed there. And that's the last section, and I have nothing it is. to add. Okay. It's been a great discussion, Ben. Yeah, absolutely, Christopher. I, I really appreciate you, you joining me and, and discussing these things. If anybody listening has uh, input, some additional thoughts or insights that they'd like to share with us, please do. Appreciate you listening and uh, look forward to next week. But for now, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks. Thanks.